0: Well, you know, in John 3, you know, Nicodemus comes to Jesus uh, at night and wants to talk with him, and Jesus starts talking about the necessity of being born again of water and the Spirit in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus is just completely, you know, appears to be completely confused by these concepts. And Jesus gets a little bit frustrated with him, And uh, you know, from the earliest age when I was reading that passage, you know, I always thought to myself, you know, Lord, why are you getting frustrated with Nicodemus? I mean, how can he understand this idea of being born of water and the Spirit? Clearly, that's a reference to baptism, but Lord, you haven't like fully introduced baptism yet. So, how could you possibly expect? Nicodemus to get it, and thus why are you getting, you know, a little bit frustrated with him for not understanding? Isn't that kind of unfair?
1: This life feels like the longest part,
0: even though eternity is ours, and on our way to streets of
1: Here we go. Hello, everybody. I am Seth. This is the Can I Say This at Church podcast. Fantastic episode for you today. Before that, a few brief announcements. So I am in the middle of trying to rework the logo a little bit. Basically, um, for those of you that have seen my picture on anywhere, I don't have a lot of hair on top of my head. And so my head gets cold. And I would really like a Can I Say This at Church Beanie or Toboggan. I grew up in Texas, so we call them toboggans. And I'm going to make one. It'll be added to the store. So get yourself some swag. Head over to the website, look at a few things. If you see something, you're like, yeah, I, I don't like that. I would like this instead. Let me know and I'll make it and we'll throw it up there. But head on over there, see what there is, get you something. If I'm entirely honest, I don't know anything about the Dead Sea Scrolls, really at all. The little that I do know is really bits and pieces. Of overheard and misread articles, Da Vinci Code type movies, History Channel specials, and really weirdly produced documentaries. And that is why I'm so thrilled about today's conversation. So I had the honor of talking with John Bergsma, he's a fantastic story, and you'll hear some of that in the episode. But we talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls, why they matter, and how they intersect with the Gospels, how that impacts the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. And so much in this is fascinating, and you hear me get so frustrated at the end of the episode because there are so many things in here that I wanted to talk about, and I don't have, and, and there's just not enough time in an episode of a podcast. And so I would highly encourage you to grab a copy of this book for those that support the show on Patreon at the level to get a book. This is November's book, so do not go out and buy it. I'm sending it to you, um, but for the rest of you, highly consider it. It is it's one of the best books that I've read all. Year, if you're one like me that you just love facts and data, and I do so. Um, I was really, I had a lot of fun geeking out on this one and really digging into the weeds of how the Dead Sea Scrolls matter and all the different correlations. Here we go, let me show you what I mean. Here comes a conversation with John Bergsman. Dr. Bergsman, welcome to the show, um, and thank you and your people for sending me an advance copy of your book, Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, I, I know if people will buy the book, and I highly recommend they do, they will be as blown away as I was because so much of what is in there, I was just entirely ignorant of, but I think a lot of people are, but I want to table that for a second. And I'd like you to kind of walk us through a bit about what makes you, because in the book I read, you know, it seems like your religious journey has had a few different roads or on and off ramps or service roads, because I'm from Texas, so we've always got that massive service road next to the interstate. Talk a a little bit about what makes you, you, kind of your story, just in a a nutshell, if you could.
0: Sure. So um, I grew up in a very devout uh, Protestant family. My dad was a U.S. Navy chaplain preacher man in the military. And I followed that track as well. Grew up all over the U.S., mostly on the coasts, being as they are near water and being in the Navy. It's good to be (laughs) near water for the boats and stuff, you know what I mean? So I spent a lot of time in Hawaii growing up, as there's a lot of Navy out there. Then went to West Michigan to our denominational college and seminary, spent 10 years there getting various degrees, and was a pastor in West Michigan for a number of years. Ended up going on for a doctorate in Scripture at the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana, a great football school. Aside from football, they're also... A major center for Dead Sea Scrolls research, which I did not realize uh, when I was accepted there, but I quickly realized when I got there. So that's where uh, you know this, the origins of this book lie, because that's where I got introduced to the scrolls at Notre Dame. Also, got introduced in a close way to the Catholic Church there. Encountered some very remarkable faithful Catholic people who were living their faith and able to explain it, and that pretty much blew me away. I'd never met Catholics like that before in my life, and they got me to read the Church Fathers, and I eventually got convinced that the uh, Eucharist uh, is the body-blood of Jesus Christ. entered the Catholic Church in um, February of 2001 and uh, ended up getting a job at Franciscan University of Steubenville here. I've been teaching here for 15 years.
1: I'm jealous of the ability to be in Hawaii for a job, or at least a family job. And then I have a follow-up question. That Does the Navy have bases that aren't attached to the water?
0: Well, uh, not exactly. Um, let me think here. They're all near bodies of water, but you got some, some odd naval bases, like on the Great Lakes, which kind of doesn't seem to
1: count, I mean, that's count, water, really. Though
0: but it's water. Yeah. So there is there is a naval base uh, near Chicago.
1: Huh.
0: Yeah, I guess they're all near water.
1: That's that's <laughs> to defend against I guess the the Canadian naval in, in invasion coming, I guess. Why why not? <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> Well, well good. I want to I want to drill down to the Dead Sea Scrolls and we alluded to this before, you know, before we got going. I know very little about them except for they are a thing and apparently an important thing. You see them come up once or twice a year, you know, during the, some big discovery. I actually read something not long ago of, you know, 50 years of translated research and they're about to come up with something, like some, some big text on it. And I might be saying that wrong, but that it's, you know, an ecumenical, there's, there's Hebrews and Catholics and Protestants and a bunch of people bringing their minds together to try to pour through them. But I wondered if you could kind of give us context, like what are the Dead Sea Scrolls? Why should people care? How does it matter?
0: Yeah, those are great questions. Let's see how we can uh, tackle that. What are the Dead Sea Scrolls? The Dead Sea Scrolls are the library of a Jewish monastery that was active uh, during the lifetime of Jesus. And they are our only documents that we still have in existence that were written contemporary with uh, the lifetime of jesus and the apostles you you've got first century you know documents here not not just that they were composed at that time but i mean they were actually written you know pen on it's not paper they're they're written on leather which is called parchment and sometimes on papyrus which is an early form of paper you know but so you you you're going back to the first century with these things they they're current you know, contemporary documents. Physically. And that's absolutely fascinating because as we'll as we'll discuss, it gives us a picture of of Jewish life, a window into Jewish life and thought that's contemporary with the gospels and oftentimes sheds light on little cultural details and, and throwaway uh information that we don't pay attention to in the gospels but but you know, actually has some cultural significance in light of, of the scrolls. So that's that's one reason they're important. They they also contain uh our oldest copies of scripture. Um, you know, they're oldest copies of the of some of the books of the Old Testament, uh, in some cases over a thousand years earlier uh than any other copies of um, you know, the scriptures that we have, certainly in the original language, which is Which is Hebrew, so you know that's that makes them big. You know, a a window into this pivotal period when we have the origins of our faith, as well as the oldest copies of our sacred books, oldest copies of the Bible. Um, Those are biggies, and um, you know, besides other kinds of uh, you know archaeological and historical data that they give us but mm-hmm. uh, but yeah that's uh, that's it in a nutshell. Let me, let me leave it at that and then you, you take it where you want to go.
1: Has, has there been anything in the in the decades since they since their finding founding whatever that word is since they were unearthed or exhumed that has kind of changed this the landscape of the church proper where we thought something at one point and now because of the scrolls we have to reinterpret everything
0: no i wouldn't say anything that drastic but uh yeah rather i would say you know the scrolls have served to confirm quite a number of things that we've always believed and now we're able to put specificity to it and produce stronger arguments for things that we've always held to be true one of the things that comes immediately to mind is the Gospel of John, you know, Christian tradition has always held it to be from the Apostle John, written in the first century by this man named John who actually knew Jesus. And for a couple of centuries, the the Gospel of John was just kicked centuries later and said, oh, no, this can't be a contemporary account of Jesus. It has signs of being influenced by later Greek philosophy, yada, yada, yadda and so german scholars were dismissing the you know the authenticity of this gospel and we didn't have a lot of resources to combat these arguments but then with the discovery of the scrolls we suddenly found uh that uh the the, the phraseology the um the language the diction kind of the slang if you will that you find in the gospel of john is contemporary with the lifetime of jesus you have unusual phrases and turns of speech, you know, expressions, etc., that are only found in uh, the Gospel of John and the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were written, you know, in the first century uh, AD or the first century BC. And suddenly the light went on for scholars that, oh my goodness, these are not, you know, the Gospel of John is not a later document. It is using the language of Jews that were living in the time of Jesus and even earlier. So I mean that's in a nutshell, but I mean we could go into greater specifics on that. But 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 it made a whole sea change in scholarship on the Gospel of John and and now it's it's fairly you know, it it's rare to find a scholar who doesn't at least admit that the Gospel of John is a is a is a first century document. A a document written within the lifetime of somebody who knew Jesus, mm-hmm. that's big because it's, it's you know, the most important gospel, uh, you know, for our faith. So to things like that, and we could mention others as well, but it, it, the, the scrolls have tended to confirm what we, you know, kind of believed already, but give us a, a way of arguing it and, and give us some data
1: to support it. I'm going to I'm going to temper my questioning mentality, but I really want to rip apart that last thing that you said of John being the most important gospel for our faith. But that's an entirely different topic and maybe an entirely different time but I really I really want to rip that apart. Um, but that's okay. We will table that. Um, I want to talk about a different John. So you at the beginning of your book, you kind of, you know, for listeners, you kind of set up the, here are what the scrolls are. Here's kind of how we read them. You know, in some of the books, I think there's one called WAR. And then there's a bunch of acronyms that I still don't quite understand uh, in my limited understanding of like, there's like QMMT. And from what I understand, those are different manuscripts and the abbreviations for those manuscripts as a reference point, correct?
0: That's Right. Um, Oftentimes, you know, scholars use jargon to refer to the scrolls, and the scrolls are often given names in Hebrew and then, um, you know, are known by acronyms. So a famous scroll that relates to uh, St. Paul's writings uh, is called 4QMMT, and that's a lot. You know that's a big mouthful, but it's uh, it, short for a long phrase in Hebrew. Basically, yeah, uh, that would be even harder to remember and say. So, yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely, yeah. Well, I mean, it was it was easy enough for me to at least remember part of it as someone uneducated in it. So I think that it is serving; it's most certainly <laughs> serving its purpose. Um, I remember it better than some books of the Bible, probably. You know that I'm not as acquainted with. I want to to drill down. So you know this these Dead Sea Scrolls. They're in the Qumran community, and can you tell us a bit, little bit about why that community existed, kind of how it stood apart from the community proper with the other sects of, I mean, you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and then kind of you correlate that to John, which is the part where I began to actually, it, it took me, um, John, it took me, it took me many months to actually read through the book because I kept setting it down because it was so much new information, especially about John. I'd never really given much credence to John. I always kind of looked at John as a, as a means to an end, and that end being Christ. But I can see now where I was wrong in that, especially if some of the correlations that you bring forth are are correct. So can you kind of set the context of why Qumran had to exist and then kind of how that relates to John the Baptist?
0: Sure. So, you know, in, in the first century... The decades leading up to the life and career of our Lord. There's basically three major schools of thought within Judaism at the time, and the first two schools of thought are very well known to us from the pages of the Gospels. You know, they're the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and you know, the Sadducees were this wealthy elite group, quite snobbish, that uh, controlled the temple, and you have to understand about that, that the temple was a huge source of revenue. So whoever controlled the temple made a ton of money, and that enabled uh, you know, the Sadducees to live a very affluent lifestyle, which did not ingratiate them with the rest of the populace, uh, you can be sure. And they also collaborated with the Romans quite a bit and that didn't make them popular either. So that's the Sadducees. Then you got the Pharisees, who were more like middle-class scholars and really bookish sorts of people. They dominated the scribal trade, and they wanted to get everybody to live by a very you know, precise observance of the Mosaic law. And of course, we see that reflected in the Gospels, and they sometimes went overboard uh, on very picayune issues while neglecting, you know, larger subjects like faith and love and justice and so on, and, and Jesus gets on their case about that. So we're familiar with the Pharisees. But then there was a third movement says that actually, we do find them in the Gospels, but they're not named, and uh, that's a group that we call the Essenes. We know them from uh, a historian uh, of the time period, a man named Josephus, which is just Latin for Joseph. But this uh, this man, Josephus, he was a Jewish scholar in general, went over to the Roman side during the war that took place in the year 70 that ended up with the destruction of Jerusalem. This man, uh, Josephus, he wrote voluminous histories of the time period. We're very lucky that he did because uh, it gave us a ton of information about characters that we find in the in the scriptures, like Herod the Great and the other Herods and Pontius Pilate, etc. But this man, Josephus, tells us about this third sect of the Jews, these Essenes. And they're basically a, a holiness group, a, a group that was practiced uh, asceticism, life of self-denial, life of poverty. Uh, they expected the Messiah to come. At any time, you know, it's sort of like one of these end times groups. Like, I don't know if folks remember the Branch Davidians from when I was a teen out in Waco, Texas. You know, a little bit like that. You know, one of these little bit crazy-eyed groups that they're expecting the Messiah to come any time. And they uh, break off and, and, um, you know, form separate communities. These Essenes, they were unique among the the branches of Judaism because uh, they practiced celibacy. Monasticism and um, one of the monasteries that they established, the only one that we have, uh, you know, good data for, was on the shores of the Dead Sea. Um, Flourished from about the year 150 BC to around the time that Jerusalem was destroyed, and around the year 70. And they lived out there, a community of 100 to 200 men, praying, working. Uh, copying the scriptures, you know, the basic things that monks typically do. Hmm. And uh, they hid their library up in the caves around their community when when it looked like they might get attacked by the Romans. And it's a good thing they did hide their library because that preserved it. And uh, we stumbled across it beginning in basically 1947 and the remains of their library is uh, what we know of as the Dead Sea Scrolls.
1: I want to drill back down to how that relates to John in a minute, but you said something there. So is there any evidence from any of the scrolls or anything else archeologically that there was more than one monastic community of the Essenes or were they really just there in Qumran?
0: Well, that's a bit of a debate, but the um w- you know, we have 3 Ancient authors that uh describe them, you know, Josephus and, and uh Philo the famous philosopher from Alexandria, Egypt, um as well as Pliny, uh, a famous Latin geographer and historian and scholar. And all three of these guys uh describe the, the Essenes and then we have we have their internal writings as well. And the only archaeological evidence we have for a monastery uh, from their group is the famous one at Qumran on the shores of the Dead Sea that gave us the famous scrolls. But from their internal documents, as well as um, from the uh, external historians that describe them, it seems like they were more widespread than just one location. So I am among those scholars that think that they must have had some other uh, established communities that in other places in in Israel that we have not discovered yet, or may never discover, uh, recover, or maybe were so completely destroyed mm-hmm. that there's nothing to find. But they, they sound like they were more widespread, certainly, than just one location.
1: How do the Essenes relate to John the Baptist?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, one of the most famous scholars of the Gospel of John, uh, Father Raymond Brown, wrote a famous uh, commentary on the Gospel of John in the Anchor Bible series, etc. But anyway, Father Brown points out that almost everything that's said about John the Baptist and the Gospels uh, seems to have some kind of connection to the Essenes and uh, to this Qumran location. So, let's see, where should we jump in? Um John the Baptist. When you know, there's an interesting statement in Luke that he was out in the desert until basically his career began. And that's kind of a funny comment, Seth, because it makes it sound like um,
1: child abandonment. Elizabeth
0: and Zachariah. Yeah, like Elizabeth <laughs> Zachariah just sent this little five-year-old out into the desert to raise himself. You know, like what is going on there? I mean, times were Why tough he then. He'll
1: be fine. He'll be he'll be fu- yeah. he'll be totally fine. <laughs>
0: Right. Sure, you're right. But uh, <laughs> uh, I think the scrolls help us to understand what's going on there, because this is a monastery out in the wilderness, and they took in boys and raised them and, and literally formed them. That's actually what the historian Josephus says. He says he formed them using that term, you know, like we use formation. So I think that Zachary and Elizabeth sent, you know, John, uh, their son, out to the monastery to be raised and formed by these uh monks and uh, you know, them being elderly and all, that would kinda make sense. Maybe they didn't feel they had the even the strength and gumption to raise a little boy at that advanced years, and they also wanted to give him a good education, and clearly these monks from the remains of their library, these are some of the best educated religious scholars in um, in the whole, you know, whole of Judaism at the time. So anyway, uh, that would explain why John was out in the wilderness until he begins his career. And then when John is described to us in the Gospels, you know, one of the curious features about him is his diet, right? So he's eating bugs and honey and stuff like that. So What's up with that? We just take it for granted because from childhood we've been told that John the Baptist does this. So we don't think twice about it. Oh, that's just what John the Baptist does, right? (laughs) (laughs) Why? You know, why is he doing this? There's no command in Scripture that you could, you know, that if you want to be super holy, you got to eat grasshoppers and honey or something. But I think there's an explanation for it because, again, getting back to this historian, Josephus, who tells us about this, uh, this group called the Essenes. He mentions, Josephus mentions, that folks that got excommunicated from their monastic order would sometimes nearly starve to death because they had taken oaths when they joined the order never again to eat food prepared anywhere outside of the monastery. So the reason they took those oaths was that the major form of punishment in the community was uh having your rations reduced and of course if you're free to you know go down to McDonald's and get a Big Mac that reduces the effectiveness of you know having your <laughs> rations in the monastery reduced so to make this effective they put everybody under these severe oaths and then and then you know if if you didn't follow the rules, uh, you had your your rations reduced, et cetera, and that that was pretty serious. And then if you were excommunicated, why then you didn't have anything to eat at all. But apparently a loophole, Seth, around this was eating stuff that was just available in the environment that was not per se food that wasn't prepared by anybody. So. Josephus mentions people eating grass, people eating bark, and John is finding stuff that has a little bit more protein and carbohydrates than grass and bark. You know, the the honey and the grasshoppers. But this would this would explain his funny diet if he had been uh, excommunicated from the community and was out there living on the land. Uh, that would you know, it suddenly makes sense of what otherwise is just kind of a bizarre off-the-wall detail about his lifestyle. Um, Then, you know, he's out there, you know, only, he's got to be within a few miles of the north end of the Dead Sea. It describes him as baptizing people in the Jordan uh, of Judea, which was very close to where this monastery was, so he had to encounter them or be in some kind of contact with them. And, you know, the question arises, like, why would he have been kicked out? And uh, my theory is because he wanted to bring the message of repentance and preparation for the Messiah to a bigger audience, including non-Jews, including Gentiles, and... uh that's something that these monks were not doing. When we read the Dead Sea Scrolls, we see that they were very much all about preparing for the coming of the Messiah, but uh just for Jews. They did not want to bring the message to the other nations, to the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. John, however, is at the fords of the Jordan preaching to Roman soldiers, pagans, whoever comes along. And... um That's actually prophesied in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is all about bringing the good news of God's salvation to all the nations. And John is all about Isaiah. He identifies himself with Isaiah 40 verse 3 when he's asked about his life mission, you know. So I think personally that John was reading the prophet Isaiah, said, look, uh, Isaiah says we gotta bring the message of God's salvation to all the nations. But the monks were too, you know, chauvinistic, shall we say, about their Jewish ethnic identity. And they're like, no, we got no use for the Gentiles. We can't bring this out to the nations, despite whatever Isaiah says. And I think it got to be a, a sticking point between the two of them, and they just had a parting of the ways. And John said, fine, you know, if you guys are not going to bring this message to a broader audience, I'm going to do it, and so he goes a few miles up the Jordan where there's a huge trading crossroads where the almost literally the whole world travels through on their way to different parts of the Near East, and he begins preaching and is enormously successful in doing it. We're not we and we're not lost where we are, taking the long way.
1: There are, you reference often, I'm trying to find the right way to phrase this question, a concept, uh, is, and what am I, I, yeah, I'm saying this wrong. So there's a concept of, quote unquote, two messiahs. Um, yep. And you argue in the book, you know, that I guess John and because of the lineage that Luke puts in uh, at the beginning for kind of his lineage isn't where he comes from and then how that relates to Jesus. But that's not a concept that I'm very familiar with. And I'm also curious, is that a concept that the Pharisees and Sadducees would have held as well or is that just an a scene thing well i guess we should start with what are you even talking about when you're talking about two messiahs cuz that's something that when i read that i highlighted and said what what did you just say cuz i'm pretty sure that that i have a messiah and it's it's never been john um so how does can you break that apart a little bit
0: yeah absolutely well you know we're we're kind of conditioned by our tradition to just take it for granted that there would only be one messiah now, what does the word Messiah mean? It's, it's Hebrew, kind of anglicized Hebrew, right? So the Hebrew word is Meshiach. It means somebody who's smeared with oil. It's the smeared one. <laughs> so, uh, and, you know, we, we, we uh, render that in English as Messiah. And then the Greek is, is Christos or Christ. That's what smeared means in uh, Greek. And so Christ and Messiah mean the same thing, somebody who's smeared with oil. Why would you be smeared with oil? Well, it was a sign that you were being set apart for a special role, typically kingship, but also priesthood and prophethood. As well, those folks were marked with oil at the beginning of uh, their ministries as well. So when we look at the Old Testament, there are prophecies particularly aimed at the royal house of David, uh, David the great king, that one day David's son would come back and... uh he would be the anointed one, and he would restore all the good things of David's reign uh, to the people of Israel. But, Seth, when we look at some of the prophets, they give indication that there also will also be a priestly figure. So if you look in Zechariah, for example, Zechariah makes references to two sons of oil, he, he calls them, uh, who will appear in uh, the later days. And he. This this seems to be a reference to an end times priest, Mm -hmm. and also an end times king. So the Essenes took Zachariah rather seriously on that issue, and they expected that there's not just going to be one Messiah, but there's going to be two Messiahs, a royal one and a priestly one. And that was probably fairly unique to them. Uh, We don't have indication that the The Sadducees didn't believe that that a Messiah was going to come at all. They were non-Messianic. The Pharisees, their hopes were focused on probably just one Messiah, a Messiah from uh, the line of David, a royal Messiah. But the the Essenes thought, well, maybe there's going to be two of them. And uh, what I argue in the book, Seth, is that, you know, St. Luke especially, uh, the way he sets up the Gospel, he seems to be reaching out to the Essenes and saying, hey guys, I know you were expecting a priestly Messiah and a royal Messiah. But if you look at it at a certain angle, that's indeed what God sent us in John the Baptist and Jesus, because... John is a kind of priestly Messiah. He's got a priestly lineage through his father, Zachariah, And he comes and uh, preaches, prepares, and anoints the royal Messiah, who is Jesus of the line of David. Mm-hmm. And if that's what you're expecting, that's kind of what God gave us. So get on board with the Jesus program, you scenes uh, because <laughs> this is kind of fulfilling what... What you're expecting. So yeah, I think <laughs> I, I think Luke is kind of a, a gospel for the Essenes in a in a certain way. Not just for them, but but in part yeah. for them.
1: Yeah, the way you say Essenes there almost sounds like a bitchort of like, get on board, U.S. Essenes. Uh just but maybe that's just because of the way that the word is said. Um I'm curious and this is not really in the text. So this many centuries later I think that when we hear the word Messiah, all we think of is Jesus and Lord. And so, the ancient Near East would be using the word Messiah as a verb, as a title, almost, but not as a salvific title, but as a calling title. Or am I am I hearing you wrong in saying that?
0: I don't think so. Although I'm not, sh- yeah, I'm not sure where exactly we'd want to go with
1: that. I was just, a, it was just an aside question because. You, yeah, uh, because if, if Messiah just means, you know, smeared with oil or anointed, um, you know, I think you could argue, you know, David would be Messiah, you know, because he was anointed with, oil. and every king of Israel, they would, they would be anointed as well. Correct?
0: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. right. So, and when we read in, when we read in the Psalms, you know, the Psalms were refer to the Lord's anointed or, um, you know, the, the anointed one, et cetera. In Greek, it comes off as your Christ. Mm. And, uh, that's right. We're, as Christians, we grow up, we think, we, we think of applying the term Messiah and Christ only to Jesus. Mm-hmm. But we, we should be aware that the term has a prehistory. And yeah. in the Old Testament, there were many anointed ones, many, if you will, Messiahs, you know, there were anointed priests, there were anointed kings, et cetera. Yeah. But in time, you know, under the influence of the prophets, you know, the, the hopes of the people became associated with a unique Messiah. anointed one, yeah. the Messiah, right? Yeah. Not just a Messiah, but the Messiah that would that would fulfill everything. And, and that's kind of the concept that, that we're more familiar with.
1: I'm going to bypass some of my questions in the instance of time. And so I'm going to try to summarize some of this into this question. And so, you know, in the Gospel of John, we've got Jesus meeting Nicodemus, you know, who was a leader in the faith community there at the time. And he basically tells him this, you know, the story about, you know, Nicodemus, you're missing it, you're going to kind of have to be, you know, reborn. And, you know, he references, you know, water and this type of stuff. And so as I was reading through that, um, it seems unfair. And you argue as well, it seems unfair for him to expect. It's like me trying to explain um, algebra to my fifth grader. Like, why do you not understand this boy? Of course, you should understand (laughs) this. And so you talk very well about, you know, Nicodemus and, and why that matters and, and kind of the community that that's written to. And so can you break through, and, and I will say Nicodemus is just one of my favorite stories in the entire Bible and all of the, of all of the pages, That that whole scene is just fantastic. But can you kind of walk through how Nicodemus kind of relates back to the Dead Sea Scrolls, kind of how those two come together?
0: Yeah, sure. Well, you know, in John 3, you know, Nicodemus comes to Jesus uh, at night and wants to talk with him, and Jesus starts talking about the necessity of being born again of water and the Spirit in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus is just completely, you know, appears to be completely confused by these concepts. And Jesus gets a little bit frustrated with him. And, uh, you know, from... The earliest age when I was reading that passage, you know, I always thought to myself, you know, Lord, why are you getting frustrated with Nicodemus? I mean, how can he understand this idea of being born of water and the Spirit? Clearly, that's a reference to baptism, but Lord, you haven't, like, fully introduced baptism yet, so how could you possibly expect Nicodemus to get it? And thus, why are you getting, you know, a little bit frustrated with him? For not understanding, isn't that kind of unfair? And uh, scholars looking at that have proposed that, oh gosh, you know, this doesn't make sense. Um, this is this is early, you know, this is early Christian storytelling. You know, a conversation about baptism in the lifetime of Jesus is anachronistic. It's um, mm-hmm. you know it doesn't make sense in Judaism. So clearly, this is uh, Christians. You know, decades, even centuries later, who by that time are very familiar with baptism. They're kind of, uh, writing their Christian theology of baptism back into the story of Jesus' life and, uh, concocting a fictional story about how Jesus discusses baptism with a Jew within his own lifetime, which of course doesn't make sense, blah, blah, yeah. blah, blah. Yeah. So, uh, if, if you follow me that far, what the, what the light that the scrolls shed on this is that, you know, up to a hundred years before our Lord's birth, these monks out on the shores of the Dead Sea, they're already practicing a daily washing with water that they believe is forgiving their sins and communicating to them the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't think that their daily washings in their ritual pools out there, in their monastery by the shores of the Dead Sea, I don't think that they were actually getting the Holy Spirit. I think they were getting ahead of themselves. Mm -hmm. I think that the Holy Spirit was not poured out until Jesus came, okay? But they were moving in the right direction, is what I'm saying. You know, they were kind of getting ahead of themselves in salvation history, but they foresaw that when the Messiah would come, there was going to be this water washing for renewal that was going to, you know, give the Holy Spirit, etc. So the reason this becomes so fascinating is that this was going on for, you know, decades, you know, prior to the life of Nicodemus, Mm -hmm. uh, our Lord, etc. And so when we go back to John 3, these concepts about water washing to receive the Holy Spirit, etc., these were, you know, in the air. this This was part of the Jewish theological conversation of the time, and Nicodemus sh- should have been aware of that if he had been keeping up with the theological journals, if you will, or you know at least reading the <laughs> the,
1: <published> the diocesan
0: <laughs> paper you know whatever yeah. you know if you been keeping up at all with with uh, with, with theological conversation, and apparently he wasn't mm-hmm. you know here he was uh one of the ruling members of you know the, the the Jewish Council, and uh, and he wasn't even taking the time to kind of keep up with uh, the theological conversation uh, of the era, and so suddenly, my my point is, um, John three makes sense within that time period because people really were talking about the necessity of water washing and, and its connection with the Holy Spirit, et cetera. Yeah. At that time, so we don't need to say that the Gospel of John is fictitious late you know, et cetera. This this really makes sense within the lifetime of our Lord and of Nicodemus.
1: I want to keep in that concept of time. And so again, I'm going to abbreviate a few questions into one, because for those listening earlier, we we talked about kind of some of the topics that I wanted to get to, and we're not going to make (laughs) it to all of them. And that's entirely fine. But Uh, also slightly frustrating, but again, I have the book here. So for those of you that want to know more, you should definitely, matter of fact, I'm actually going to, I'm going to send the book out. Um, John, you don't know this, but there's a certain level of patron supporters that I send them a book every month. I think I'm going to make this one November's October's has already come out. So I, I really have enjoyed it. So, uh, in the interest of time, so many of the pushbacks that I get from so many people that hold to, uh, you know, inerrancy view of scripture, which I don't necessarily, uh, you know, if there's any contradiction, it's either intentional or all of the bathwater goes out with all of the baby, and then we're gonna light the whole house on fire because my God can't handle any inconsistencies. And what you hear from a lot of people, and you allude to it in the book as well, very popular the people as well like Bart Ehrman or a bunch of people will basically say, you know, all of these stories of the Passover, the crucifixion, the Last Supper. Everything doesn't line up. And then in the book, you talk about, well, there were two liturgical calendars, which really shouldn't be a surprise to people because we still have one, you know, our Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters. They usually celebrate Easter on a different timeline than we do. And every once in a while, like, they maybe are on the same day, uh, which is really beautiful. But I wanted, I wondered if you could break that through a bit. And then I had alluded to, I had a, I had a thought process with that, and I may be off base and you can tell me if I am, but kind of how do those two timelines sit with the Synoptic Gospels and John, and how can the two be reconciled? Sure.
0: Well, one of the major um, apparent discrepancies between the Gospels is about the, the dating of Passion Week. And uh, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, portray our Lord celebrating the Last Supper on Passover. But John seems to suggest that Jesus is being crucified on the day before Passover. And if you look at the relevant passages in the Gospels, you can, you can see this. So some make a huge deal about this. You mentioned Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman brings this up and, and employs this as an argument to try to disabuse Christians of their confidence in the Gospels, etc. Like, look at this, the Gospels can't even get the dating of Passion Week correct, so how can we trust them on anything else? and like you said, throw the baby out with the bathwater. Now, there's different possible explanations of this, but what I argue in the book and what I'm personally convinced of is that, first of all, there were more than one liturgical calendar operational among the Jews at this time. There was an older calendar... That was followed by the Essenes and probably some other, you know, more conservative groups that always celebrated Passover earlier in the week on a Tuesday evening because Passover itself was on a Wednesday in this calendar. And then there was a more recent calendar that had been introduced in about the year 150 BC that. Involved, it's called a loony solar calendar. It involves a clumsy uh, correlation of the cycles of the moon and the cycles of the sun. And uh, in this calendar, uh, Passover moves around quite a bit. And in any event, uh, this provides us, though, an explanation of why the different gospel authors uh, could be referring to Passover taking place on different days. In fact, it's uh, striking because the Gospel of John actually refers to the Passover of the Judeans on a number of occasions, and that's kind of when you think about it, Seth. It's kind of an odd phrase. It's like saying something like, you know, the Fourth of July of the Americans. <laughs> like, well, who, what, you know, who else celebrates the Fourth of July, right? You know, the Fourth of July of the Russians. You know, what are you talking about? But actually, the Passover of the Judeans is not a throwaway line, because in the lifetime of, say, John the Apostle, there were several different Passovers. There was the Passover of the Samaritans, who had a different cultural history. They were descendants of the northern ten tribes. Uh, They had a different temple up on Mount Gerizim, which is mentioned in John chapter 4. There was the Passover of the Essenes, who—the Essenes, by the way, did not call themselves Jews or Judeans. They— we referred to themselves as Israelites, hmm. and uh, and they observed a uh, a different Passover. So it's it's actually significant that John mentions that he's you know following the Passover of the Gideons. That's not mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so what I propose in the book is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are following this older liturgical calendar which Jesus seems to have sympathies for. But John is following the Judean calendar, the main calendar that was followed by the temple, and the, the different Gospels are, are dating the events of Passion Week according to these uh, different calendars. and Our Lord celebrated Passover according to the older calendar uh, with the disciples, but then ended up being crucified on Friday, the day before the Passover that was according to the temple calendar at that time. Mm-hmm. So this, this provides a... a you know, a, a plausible, you know, like a historically plausible uh, explanation for this apparent discrepancy, I find rather convincing, actually.
1: Yeah. Well, and you argue in the book, too, it, it um reconciling two calendars, and you have a nice breakdown. I can't remember what page it's on, like maybe 97, 102, something like that, of, you know, if, we, if we're if interpreting both calendars and we're using all four texts, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John... um you get a little more time for Jesus to actually maybe be on trial that he was crucified for, as opposed to zipping through all that in the matter of, you know, midnight to, to the morning or even to the evening. Like that's a lot of, I mean, what did he have? Like three, four, five, too many trials to, to to fit into effectively a morning, which I like. And I never really put that down together, but I really liked that logical time train. I love things to fit in a little logic box. And that made a lot of sense to me. And then here was kind of my thought on that. So, when you reconcile the two ca- the two calendars, and I I think this is my thoughts. Maybe you wrote it, and I just don't remember reading it. Maybe that's where I took it from. But correct me if I'm wrong. So, for me, you have Christ Jesus the Christ uh, reconciling both Passover. So he's he's able to in one calendar do the the Last Supper and the Passover feast with one text, and then he's also able to actually be crucified and reconcile things again on another Passover on the cross, which I find beautiful, a reconcilement of of everything. And maybe that's me. Maybe you wrote it and I just can't remember reading it. I, I, I honestly can't remember. But am I off base with that, where it's kind of, it, it can be interpreted as maybe reconciling both of those calendars and all of the Israelites as well as Samaritans and everyone else together at the same time?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's how i see it as well what if if this calendar explanation is correct then you have our lord celebrating passover according to one and then um he appears not to drink the final cup you know that's that's a separate discussion but he our lord appears to break off the passover celebration with the disciples before drinking the last and fourth cup of the uh of the Passover, he undergoes his passion, but then he significantly drinks wine at the cross. We see that in John 19. Mm -hmm. It's very clear. takes that final drink and then says, it is finished, which could be a reference to the Passover liturgy that he had begun in the upper room and then he dies as the great passover lamb at the time that the lambs are being sacrificed in the temple yeah. for passover and you're right so he he bridges the gap between two liturgical calendars he's it seems like he's uniting in himself all these divisions that the Jews had broken themselves into and um you know reconciling Judaism reconciling the liturgy uh transforming you know the Jewish liturgy into himself, transforming the old Passover into the new Passover. Yeah, it's it's really it's really quite beautiful. Yeah, if this theory is true, it's, it kind of works out quite nicely.
1: There are so many more things that I want to talk about. You know, baptism, water, Mark, Paul, and I don't. Ha- we don't have time for any of that because I'd, t- <laughs> I'd made a time made a time commitment. Um, I feel like I could honestly because this is so much new information. I could probably talk for hours about it, but I can't, and I don't think either can you. <laughs> so, John, where would you point people? To grab a hold of the book i 'm um, I'm, I'm sure it 's available everywhere that fine books are sold uh, to hear more about this, I know you 've got a couple videos online like where would you direct people to to begin to dip their toes into this slowly, and I would advise slowly because it is new information and it 's a new um, lens to see scripture through, and I know for some people that can be uh, uncomfortable, but I also think necessary. but where would you send people towards
0: Sure, well, you can get you know a copy of the book. That, uh, you know, this, this is a, you know, Penguin Random House. So, uh, you can find it in Walden Books or, uh, Borders or, uh, you know, all those places. If you, uh, you can, can get find it on one. Amazon. If you, if you want a, if you want a signed copy, you can, you can go to my website, Catholic and go into the store and order a, a signed copy, if you want, but um, yeah, I, I recommend the book. I mean, I, I wrote the book for believers, uh, for Christians, uh, to kind of introduce them to the to the scrolls. You know, highlighting the information that's most interesting for people that are practicing Christians. And so, you know, there's, there's lots of other books on this on the scrolls out there, but oftentimes they're very technical and yeah. they're not concerned with what would be of interest. To people that are trying to live a life of prayer, and, yeah. you know, uh, follow the Christian faith. So that is a avenue there. And also on my website, uh, CatholicBibleTeacher.com, uh, you can uh, get a audio uh, of uh, kind of like a highlight reel of the book on an audio talk called uh, The Dead Sea Scrolls for Catholics. Lighthouse Media has an even shorter version of that, just a one-hour excerpt of that, Uh, that I think is available on their website as well, Mm. One Hour Introduction to the Scrolls. Uh, So that's available. I've also got like a 30-hour audio course uh, on the scrolls that folks can jump into, but I would recommend maybe getting one of the shorter uh, audios before you do that. So those are some resources that are out there that might get folks started.
1: Perfect. Well, Don, thank you so much again for your time early this morning on a Monday. Um, And thanks for coming on the show. And I really, I can't stress this enough. Like I really enjoyed your book. Um, I read every book that I talk to people about, but I don't always really enjoy the books, but I really, um, just the way that my brain likes to rip apart facts and like suck them all in, like really, really, really enjoyed it. So thanks for writing it. Um, I look forward to digging more into it. And thanks again for coming on.
0: You bet, Seth. Thanks so much. Take care. Now, living life like every moment counts mm, here on earth with kingdom eyes, treasuring the gift of borrowed time.
1: I wanna stress again just how much I did not talk about with John from this book. So much in here, I've not really made correlations to, had no context for. I genuinely think that we do a disservice by not digging further into the Dead Sea Scrolls and all the different correlative properties of it. If I've learned anything over this last, you know, five, six years, there's so much interweaving together of the ancient Near East and it only makes scripture more beautiful. It makes Jesus more beautiful. It makes so many things much more rich and deep and it is worth the effort. And so highly encourage you get the book. It is worth it's worth it. It's very it, just just go get the book. I'm very special. Thanks to Neon Feather for the use of their music in this episode. And if you like that song or any of the other things that you ever hear on the show, there is both an Apple music playlist as well as a Spotify playlist for. Can I say this at church? I try to update it as frequently as possible. There's hundreds of songs there. Uh, They're all special to me for their own reason, but it's fantastic. Go get that there. I cannot wait to talk to you all next week. Be blessed, everybody.